are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. We have long discussed our wish to host an event celebrating the work and life of the Lithuanian-American uh, anthropologist, Professor Maria Gimbutas. We are happy that this event is finally taking place today. Several organizations and people helped make this event possible. We are grateful to the Lithuanian Culture Institute, financial sponsors of events throughout the year celebrating the centennial of Dr. Gimbutas' birth. We thank Arista Tsertautas, who established a fund to support speakers from Lithuania, honoring her father, the philosopher of education, Kazis Tsertautas, his mother, Dora Pilkauskaita, and her mother, Ilse Tsertautas, who was our own professor of Central Asian anthropology here at the University of Washington. Ilsa passed away in 2019. We thank the Reishis and Lific families here in Seattle who established an endowment to support our university's outreach to the Baltic communities in the Seattle area. And finally, we thank the Association for the Advancement of Baltic Studies, AABS. Maria Gimbutas was a founding member of the AABS 53 years ago, and she served as the association's president from 1980 to 1982. The AABS invites you to attend its biennial conference on Baltic studies held here at the University of Washington on campus in May next year, 2022. We hope to meet you all again at that conference, this time on campus in person. And I'd like to now introduce our panel titled Feminist Anthropology of Old Europe, celebrating the centennial of Maria Gimbutas. Maria Gimbutas, as both a scholar and a human being, inspired and provoked many great minds of the late 20th and 21st century. We are deeply honored to have some of, those, some of those great minds with us here today. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our four presenters. From Vienna, we are joined by Dr. Rasa Navitskaite, who in 2020 successfully defended her doctoral thesis about Maria Gimbutas. She was a recipient of the AABS Dis Dissertation Award. She is joining us between classes that she's now teaching at the Central European University. From Los Angeles, Dr. Ernestine Elster was a student of Maria Gimbutas, and they worked together on four archaeological digs. She is today associated researcher at the Kotzen Institute of Archaeology at the University of California, Los Angeles. From London, England, Dr. Colin Renfrew, senior fellow of the McDonald Institute for Archaeological Research at Cambridge University, was a colleague and also a very collegial opponent of Maria Gimbutas. He is author of seminal books in archaeological research and theory, and also widely used textbooks. Also from Los Angeles, we are happy to welcome Maria Gimbutas' daughter, Dr. Jivile Gimbutas, author of books and articles about modern American poetry and literature. We will begin with presentations by Dr. Navitskaita and Dr. Elster, followed by responses from Dr. Renfrew and Dr. Gimbutas. I will then ask Drs. Navitskaita and Elster to respond to our two respondents. <laughs> and then we'll turn to questions submitted by you, our audience. And so our first presentation is by Rasa Navitskaita, titled Goddess Archaeology, Maria Gimbutas, Feminism, and the Construction of East European Heritage. Dr. Navitskaita, the virtual room is yours. 
Um, uh, thank you very much, uh, Guntis, uh, for uh, inviting me to speak uh, um, and uh, for organizing this uh, amazing roundtable. It's just uh, such a great uh, opportunity to meet uh, uh, in person and be in one roundtable with um, um, Professors Elster and Professor Renfrew and Jibila uh, Gimbutas, the daughter uh, of Maria Gimbutas. I, I am uh, very honored that you invited me, so thank you very much. Uh, and uh, um, uh, my, my talk will be based on my uh, dissertation research, uh, and I hope to, um, um, well, give uh, some of my thoughts, uh, raise some questions, and, and receive uh, some uh, feedback from other participants. I, um, I approach Gimbutas, I have to say, uh, from the very start, uh, from um, a gender studies perspective uh, and uh, as a historian. So uh, for, for me, uh, it is interesting um, to see her uh, as, a, as a person uh, in history, uh, in a certain um, uh, historical moment, right? And to understand uh, her work in that context. And in particular, I'm interested in positioning uh, Maria Gimbutas within the history of feminism and understanding her work in the context of feminism. So, um, I will also ask uh, in, in this lecture, uh, and I'm curious uh, what your opinion will be uh, on this, but I'm curious if we can read Maria Gimbutas as a, as a feminist thinker, uh, even though she never called her herself one. Um, because uh, although it is a fact that she never uh, took, uh, um, she, she never uh, really took up the label of feminism, um, her uh, works, I think they, um, uh, really, um, uh, will we see uh, a certain feminist or pro proto-feminist um, ideas uh, communicated in her works, uh, I think, uh, and also precisely through association with certain feminist groups um, that uh, she became uh, so popular uh, outside of academia, uh, quite unlike any other archaeologist, in fact, uh, and um, uh, also uh, it sort of, um, uh, uh, overshadowed uh, her uh, legacy to some extent, uh, because um, uh, sometimes the validity of her claims have been questioned uh, precisely through asking, was her work inspired by feminism? So um, uh, these are some of the questions that are interesting to me. Uh, and uh, in today's uh, um, uh, presentation, I want to position her within the context of feminism in the United States, because I believe we cannot fully understand her work, especially starting with uh, 1970s, what she wrote uh, since the 1970s, without this context. So, um, uh, uh, and, and I believe that uh, um, uh, Professor uh, uh, Elster uh, will talk, talk more about them uh, the path that brought Gimbutas to her old uh, Europe hypothesis um, in terms of uh, archaeological research. Uh, but uh, I, I will not be touching uh, upon that, but more uh, outlining the sociopolitical context within her, uh, within which her ideas were born. So, um, uh, and, and here we are talking about 1970s uh, United States uh, and feminism in the 1970s, because we know that uh, her, uh, her first book, uh, which elaborated uh, uh, this um, uh, so-called so goddess uh, uh, hypothesis, her, uh, the, the hypothesis of matristic prehistory um, uh, of, of Europe, uh, the old uh, uh, Europe uh, hypothesis, it was published in 1974, uh, and it landed in this uh, context uh, 
of uh, cultural feminism in the United States. So in the 1970s, we have a, um, uh, quite a, a new uh, feminism uh, sort of um, uh, being, uh, well, uh, becoming more and more popular in the United States. Or, uh, we can see a turn from uh, radical feminism uh, towards cultural feminism. So if radical feminism, uh, which predominated in the women's liberation movement in the 1960s, which uh, aimed to overthrow uh, the gender binary to, um, uh, which was more, uh, uh, came from a Marxist perspective, like wanted to get uh, rid of uh, this uh, sex class system, uh, was a political uh, um, um, uh, activism we see a turn towards uh, what feminist historians call cultural feminism. Um, uh, and um, uh, this, this kind of feminism instead aimed to reclaim femininity and reverse the traditional associations in our culture with femininity and masculinity. Um, they, uh, this feminism tended towards more subcultural movements like, um, uh, and uh, also at the same time, uh, it, uh, it was uh, somewhat disillusioned uh, with political or legal activism and instead aimed to question very fundamental structures of society, uh, of, of civilization itself, such as, for example, the Judeo-Christian religion. And uh, I added here Mary Daly, a picture of Mary Daly, a famous feminist theologian, and her book Beyond God the Father, uh, which was uh, one of the pioneering books within this uh, tradition uh, of uh, cultural feminism. Uh, and uh, uh, this um, cultural feminism gave push uh, to a new um, uh, movement within religion, within uh, religious studies, within theology for feminists uh, to really uh, try to rethink, to question some of the basic assumptions within traditional religions and religious studies. Uh, and out of this, um, um, there was a, um, a lot of this feminist uh, action and thinking born, which aimed to even reform the traditional churches like um, Catholic uh, church uh, and, and other churches, um, uh, or uh, aimed to create um, a new uh, religion whatsoever. So uh, this new religion um, uh, which uh, again was born in the 1970s, uh, uh, was called, uh, can be called in many ways uh, as a feminist spirituality or as goddess spirituality, as woman-centered religion, uh, also uh, witchcraft. I um, added here some uh, photos of uh, most prominent uh, leaders, if I may say, uh, of uh, this feminist spirituality movement, uh, Starhawk uh, and um, uh, Z Budapest, Zuzana Budapest, who was, by the way, uh, Hungarian uh, with a, a, a biological, uh, biographical trajectory quite similar to Maria Gimbutas. She was also a refugee from Eastern Europe. So um, by the end of 70s, uh, feminist spirituality was a flourishing subculture uh, on the West Coast and uh, in, in Los Angeles in particular, where Maria Gimbutas lived. Uh, this subculture uh, had also enormous interest in exploring uh, prehistory of humanity, uh, in fact. Uh, so, um, because for the creation of this new uh, woman-centered religion, uh, they had to look somewhere for inspiration. And the answer uh, was most often found in uh, pagan religions, in uh, prehistoric uh, traditions. So, uh, there was this enormous interest in prehistory, 
uh, already in 1971, we have one book uh, uh, by Elizabeth Gal Davis, The First Sex, dealing with this um, um, uh, supposedly woman-centered uh, prehistory, or uh, another book by, by Marilyn Stone, uh, uh, again, um, uh, asking questions about uh, the existence of a uh, uh, goddess um, uh, spirituality and women-led uh, uh, societies before um, uh, before start of our civilization. So these books, uh, um, uh, what they had in common, uh, that they were written uh, by uh, not by archaeologists and uh, not uh, uh, well. Marilyn Stone was an art historian, but she was not uh, uh, specialized in prehistory. Uh, and Elizabeth Dell Davis was a librarian um, and also uh, not. Uh, um, not an archaeologist, not, not a, um, uh, so to say, so they didn't have this um, uh, authority, let's say, to argue about certain facticity, right, about uh, prehistoric past. And it is in this context that in 1974, um, uh, the book written by Maria Gimbutas um, uh, fell, let's say, and I, I couldn't really think of a more um, um, well, uh, more fertile uh, uh, ground uh, for reception uh, of this uh, book um, than California in the 1970s, right? So Gimbutas in 1974, she published uh, the book The Gods and Goddesses of Old Europe, uh, in which she outlined uh, uh, her hypothesis of old Europe. So the existence of woman-centered uh, goddess worshiping, environmentally um, friendly, peaceful, uh, uh, art-loving civilization that existed in Europe before the arrival of Indo-Europeans. Uh, and uh, uh, this book uh, um, uh, really sort of um, uh, argued that at the very core of the civilization was a different kind of spirituality, a spirituality which was centered around a, um, uh, a mother, uh, uh, sorry, not a mother, uh, um, a goddess, uh, a goddess creator who was a primary goddess uh, in this uh, old European uh, pantheon uh, of gods uh, and goddesses, uh, and sort of created this ideological spiritual basis for the flourishing of the society, right? Uh, and uh, Gimbutas brought um, uh, with, her, uh, with her book to this context, let's, let's say of feminism, of cultural feminism, a lot of things. Uh, first of all, her book uh, was based, uh, uh, unlike the previous books, it was based on primary and secondary sources, like on archaeological uh, artifacts, uh, um, many of uh, which she has excavated herself in uh, excavations that she directed in Southeast Europe. Uh, she was an established authority in archaeology, a professor at UCLA. Um, so she had this enormous uh, scholarly authority at the time uh, to pro propose something like that. Uh, and yet, also, it was um, uh, very sympathetic uh, to the uh, ideas um, that uh, appealed also to cultural feminists, right? So it's really trying to fundamentally rethink and reverse some of the assumptions in archaeological narrative of prehistory and proposed what I think uh, can be called a certain woman-centered perspective. So uh, this book uh, immediately uh, received, uh, was received uh, very, um, well, it was received, first of all, by a feminist art movement. Um, uh, and uh, here uh, you see, for example, um, uh, some uh, photographs of uh, ritual and uh, artistic performance by Mary Beth Edelson, who was inspired by Gimbutas' book to travel uh, to Croatia, then uh, former, uh, former Yugoslavia, uh, and uh, find uh, uh, this old um, 
uh, ancient uh, location of goddess worship in order to perform uh, this feminist ritual to connect with the goddess past. So, uh, so, so this was how uh, um, Gimutas' work was first uh, uh, picked up by um, feminists, by feminist artists. Uh, and um, uh, Gimbutas herself was not really actively involved uh, at the time, as I understand, uh, in feminist circles. It was, um, uh, but she uh, continued to have interest in this topic uh, of uh, goddess civilization. Uh, and um, uh, her book was republished uh, some years later in 1981 with a reverse title, or actually the title as she uh, originally had envisioned it already as goddesses and gods of old Europe, like signaling uh, a certain shift. Uh, and um, uh, Gimutas continued to write uh, about uh, uh, old uh, Europe uh, and um, further um, elaborate on this distinction between old Europe and uh, the Indo-European uh, civilization and uh, civilization that uh, came after old Europe as a sort of black and white uh, image uh, between the two. Uh, and uh, she, she um, placed emphasis on uh, reinterpretation from uh, what I think can be called a woman-centered perspective of archaeological materials. For example, reinterpretation of the so-called Venuses or monstrous Venuses, uh, which uh, she thought uh, should not be interpreted as uh, pornographic or sexualized uh, um, uh, artifacts but uh, uh, that we can learn something from these images about a philosophical, symbolical, spiritual understanding of prehistoric people about how they uh, thought about the world. Uh, and uh, Gimbutas continued uh, um, writing about old Europe, um, uh, her uh, latest two um, uh, huge volumes, The Language of the Goddess and uh, The Civilization of the Goddess were dedicated uh, to um, explaining, outlining uh, in, um, in much detail um, the script uh, of old Europe uh, and uh, the civilization, the social structure uh, of um, old Europe. I think it is important uh, to note uh, that in these books, in her last two books, uh, she spoke not only as an archeologist, um, but she definitely aimed to speak to a wider society, being aware already about a, uh, of the interest that her work um, has inspired uh, in, uh, in many social movements, right? And she really aimed to communicate certain uh, philosophical messages in her work, so, uh, which I think resonate a lot with the goals of cultural feminism. So first of all, she aimed to reevaluate, rethink the notions of civilization and progress and argue that war and oppression are not uh, innate uh, to humanity, that in fact, humanity has lived uh, very uh, differently. Before what we call civilization, uh, humans lived uh, um, much more happily, right, and peacefully. Uh, so um, so uh, hierarchy oppression was not necessary for um, civilization. Uh, and second, uh, she um, also contributed to thinking about femininity and masculinity, right, what we would call gender. So she thought uh, of femininity and masculinity uh, not as biological differences that much, but more as philosophical principles, as primary elements. So in a quite a pre-modern manner, she thought uh, about uh, those, um, about femininity and masculinity. Uh, and uh, she aimed to place female femininity as a central category for the understanding of prehistoric 
um, humanity and a prehistoric human uh, spirituality. Uh, so, um, and uh, she also always argued that uh, this uh, goddess that she is talking about is not really uh, a goddess, um, not a fertility goddess necessarily, but really she aimed to uh, think uh, of this goddess uh, the way we think nowadays in monotheistic religions about God as a, a creatrix. Uh, so um, um, uh, 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 the great goddess who is not uh, really a giver uh, of birth uh, in this, uh, of, of human birth, but uh, um, the principle of nature, the, the principle of birth and life itself, right? Uh, so in this way, really reversing quite radically uh, the, uh, well, uh, the predominant um, Judeo-Christian and in general uh, monotheistic um, uh, patriarchal understanding of how to think about deity. So I think that was quite a radical um, proposition. Uh, and uh, she was included, for example, in 1989 uh, in uh, anthology uh, of uh, feminist spirituality among many well-known feminist names, uh, Alice Walker, uh, Susan Griffin, uh, Gloria Anzaldúa, and many other names that um, um, might be familiar uh, uh, to people uh, who are interested in the history of feminism, maybe more than Gimbutas herself. All right, uh, and uh, in the 1980s and early 90s, I think her popularity grew uh, and grew, uh, and not only anymore in the subcultural circles, but also outside of them. Uh, uh, there was a mass uh, really uh, of uh, uh, magazine articles. There were, um, there were exhibitions in her honor, et cetera, et cetera. There was really a lot of interest in this uh, theory of hers, uh, although there was, of course, a lot of criticism and increasingly more and more criticism, especially in the 1990s, uh, probably with increasing popularity, but I will not go into detail into this. And of course, then uh, we have uh, the uh, documentary Science, Science Out of Time that uh, was produced in 2003 uh, by, um, again, by uh, feminist spirituality movement uh, and Starhawk, which I mentioned at the beginning, um, um, uh, a neo-pagan witch, uh, 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 right? She was very interested in Maria Gimbutas uh, as, as a person in her ideas. Uh, and so they created this uh, documentary, hour long documentary about Maria Gimbutas and sort of really entrenching her as this uh, grandmother, let's say, of, um, of uh, feminist spirituality uh, movement. All right, so uh, I'm going towards the end of my presentation. Uh, and I want to raise uh, some questions maybe and some hypotheses. Um, uh, maybe we can talk more about it. So um, first of all, how come Gimbutas became uh, so important for the goddess movement? Well, I think it is pretty clear just simply because of her ideas and her words. But there is something uh, also to be said about the fact that she was uh, uh, also almost worshipped, and I'm saying it without irony, um, uh, almost worshipped by uh, the uh, goddess uh, groups. Uh, and uh, so, so uh, for, for me, it was interesting also how come she became this person, right, uh, who was so admired uh, in, in those uh, feminist spiritual, spirituality groups, uh, although she never called herself a feminist, she never belonged uh, directly to those groups, right? So I think, and um, I wonder what, um, uh, what other uh, members of, uh, of this roundtable uh, will have to say about it. But I think it, it has something to do with generation uh, because I think Gimbutas was at least 20 years older than most of the participants in the second wave feminism. 
uh, and uh, older definitely than most of the participants in feminist spirituality movements. So she uh, was more of a mother or even a grandmother character for feminist spirituality movement. Plus, again, she brought this authority of a scholar of archeologists um, uh, with her works, uh, which was also always entangled, interestingly, with a more mystical uh, aspects of a sort of feminine wisdom. Like Gimbutas uh, herself uh, on, on a few occasions, Ragana, which is a Lithuanian uh, word for a witch, uh, sort of um, implying uh, that she was not only uh, a, a dry scientist, right? Not only uh, interested in scientific facts, but also a visionary, right? Um, a, a visionary and uh, utopian thinker in a way. And I think it was uh, also her uh, connection to Lithuania and a certain image of Lithuania that helped to create uh, this uh, persona, uh, which became so uh, important for uh, the goddess movement. Uh, so uh, Lithuanian heritage in her work was uh, this one of those uh, sources for, um, well, um, understanding uh, and uh, deciphering uh, uh, all the European symbols. Um, and um, I think that in a way Gimbutas in her works um, created uh, almost an orientalized, uh, well, definitely romanticized picture of Lithuania is preserving uh, a lot of pagan cultural elements sort of resisting modernity almost stuck in time place uh, with which um, uh, she had uh, obviously a, a strong connection. And through that connection, she also connected somehow directly as a person to old Europe and to this old European spirituality about which she talked in her works. Uh, and uh, just to illustrate uh, a little bit how um, uh, Lithuania, uh, for example, uh, was presented in her um, uh, one of her last books, The Langu Language of a Goddess, um, she described it uh, as a place where still there flow sacred and miraculous rivers and springs, where flourish holy forests and groves, reservoirs of blossoming life, where grow gnarled trees brimming with vitality and holding the power to heal. Along waters, there still stand men here called goddesses, full of mysterious power. And here is also uh, one image uh, from Lithuania, which was presented in the documentary Science uh, Out of Time. Uh, also depicting Lithuania as this almost uh, pre-modern uh, place with this authentic connection to a forgotten woman-centered old European spirituality, which um, I think contributed to the particular, uh, particularly uh, appealing persona, um, uh, creation of this appealing persona for uh, the uh, feminist spirituality movement in the United States. So um, uh, this um, uh, will be uh, uh, my presentation. Um, I hope uh, um, I raised uh, some questions and I'm very curious uh, to hear uh, your uh, comments and to talk more um, uh, about Maria Gimutas. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Navitskaite. Our next presentation is by uh, Professor Ernestine Elster, titled Maria Gimbutas and Old Europe. Dr. Elster, the room is yours. Good morning to everybody, and I'm happy to be here, and thank you for inviting me, Guntis. Uh, <clears throat> Maria certainly was my mentor, and later we became colleagues and friends. And she arrived at UCLA in 1963. She had been, of course, at Harvard and then at Stanford. And then when she came to UCLA, not a few years later, she began her first excavation 
which was the excavation at Obrey. And that was directed by her and uh, Alois Benatz, who was the head of the Zamalski Museum in Sarajevo. And Obrey was close to Sarajevo. <clears throat> and the team that came from UCLA, Maria had selected from among her students. Most of, most of them had, had been taking Binford's classes and Jim Sackett's classes. So they were a little bit used to, I would say, new archeology. span And the Yugoslavian team was not particularly interested in, in the kind of excavation that new archeology span demanded. And so they started their excavation separate but equal, side by side. And um, it was really quite interesting because that it went on for a couple of seasons. In the meantime, Maria had invited, she had met Colin Renfrew and she had invited him to UCLA to give a series of lectures. He was there for an entire semester. So all of us who were in her graduate seminars and classes, we were encouraged to take his class which we all did. And it was in the class that we learned about their plans for their excavations at Cedigri, which is a site in Northeast Greece, <clears throat> about 25 kilometers from the coast, not far from the, th the Greek Thracian border. It was an area that had not been investigated very much, although there had been a site that had started in 1961 by the French at an area, the site is called Gikalitash. Now in our lecture classes, Maria always introduced any number of sites and she had slides that she had taken when she visited the sites, the sites rather. And also she read so many different languages that she could really explain the site location, the geography, the kinds of architecture that were exposed, the sorts of finds and so forth. So we really were introduced to sites in Yugoslavia, that was Yugoslavia then, in Hungary, in Romania, in uh, Bulgaria, of course in Greece, some sites on the Adriatic as well. I visited uh, Maria's first excavation at, at Obrey, I didn't stay there because it was uh, because it was her second season when I visited, and UCLA was opening in 1968. Because during the time that Colin Renfrew was at uh, UCLA, she and he organized the site, organized the site excavation. Um, <clears throat> the site itself was uh, a a mound, what's called a mugula in Greek. It was uh, ultimately, we excavated an area about 40 meters wide from east to west and 140 meters from the top to the bottom of the mound. And that had to be definitely the area that we worked on because in order to excavate at that time in Greece and probably now also, it was necessary to negotiate with the landowner, the area that you wanted to use because ordinarily that entire land was being, was planted. And so he had to be willing for a certain price to release it. And then the land would be, 
would be turned back at the end of the excavation to the Greek government, which is the situation at C degree. Well, C degree was like what we think of as a layer cake. In other words, as we dug down, the layers formed levels or horizons. And the ultimately the area of five by five meters went down a total of 10 and a half meters before reaching what is called virgin soil. And in the analysis of the materials that came from this deep sounding, we could compare them with other materials that came from other parts of the mound. And eventually we were able to establish a kind of a series of five habitation levels from phase one through five. And with the 2029 radiocarbon dates, this area, this entire mound then could be looked at as having experienced some 3000 years of occupation from middle Neolithic to the beginning of the early Bronze Age. So about 5,500 BC to around 2200 BC. So that was a nice long, uh, a nice long 3000 years. Now, Obre did not last that long, but now Maria had Obre and its radiocarbon dates, and then eventually C degree and its radiocarbon dates. The next excavation that Maria undertook was the excavation at Anza Begovo. Now Anza Begovo is a, was a small kind of a hamlet <laughs> near Steep in what is now North Macedonia. It was of course then the Southern part of Yugoslavia. I think its capital is Skopje. And, um, and Zbegovo was extremely interesting. Maria excavated in cooperation jointly with, um, with Milutin, the two Garashinans, Professor and Mrs. Milutin Garashinan. And they were both from the National Museum in Belgrade, a very well-known archeologist. They were also interested in early Neolithic and I think Maria hoped that this particular site, that is uh, Anzabregabo, would have Starchevo levels, Starchevo being the, the early Neolithic in Yugoslavia. Well, it was a very interesting site. It had quite a few uh, human skeletal remains and, um, and all of that hasn't been fully analyzed as such. In fact, just a year or so ago, two younger archaeologists, one from, I think, North, North Macedonia and one from Tubingen contacted me because they were interested, I think, in doing some ancient DNA studies on the skeletal materials and hoped that I would know where they might be stored, which I thought would be in, in Hungary because it was the Hungarian uh, anthropologist, physical anthropologist, who, who was going to, and who had reported on some of the skeletal remains, but I don't think we have yet put all of this together. All right, now that's, that's the, the image of Maria and, and Benatz, Alos Benatz at Obrey. 
here you've seen this. These are all the books. She's very, she was always just committed to disseminating her work. Here are the five publications. This is uh, Shandor Bakanyi. He's a very eminent paleozoologist and he uh, participated in every one of the excavations. So we always had a report as to the percentage of animals that were hunted and which animals were herded. And generally the, uh, the basis for, their, for, for the economy from the standpoint of the faunal remains. Subsequently, people such as uh, Jane Renfrew analyzed the pollen remains and we knew the kinds of things that they sow or they reap or they just collected. And here is a map of the five sites. Obrey, there's in near Sarajevo, Anza in uh, North Macedonia, Sidigri near the coast, Achillean, I'll get to that a little later. And then uh, Gratus Galoria, the last site over there near the Gargano Peninsula and very close to the Adriatic. And here was the, the chart, the chronology of Maria's sites. There you see Sidigri and the, the dates off to the left in calibrated dates. Now let's go a little bit farther down. Yes, so now here is, this is the mound of Sidigri at sunrise. And um, it's a very agrarian area in that part of Greece, of course. The tiny little dots at the top of this low mound is the Ramada, the screen, the little canopy that we put up for the workmen so that, and everybody else, so the workmen and all the archeologists, so that when there was a break in the middle of the day, everybody could come clamoring under there to get a little shade and a drink. And I told you that, that the area that was excavated was some 40 meters by there. So here you see the long, I don't know if you can see this error, but it's right here. That was the square called ZA, which went to the virgin soil. Now, my talk is quite archeological in part because Guntis asked me to bring in quite a bit of it because he felt that perhaps some of the audience was not particularly experienced in looking at archeological sites and reports of archeological sites. And though indeed Maria is our, is our focal point, but she was very interested in her archeological sites and, and I am too. This, by the way, here, the next one, shows you those 29 radiocarbon dates and how they were eventually uh, formed into this calibration table. So there are two sets of dates because the radiocarbon years were then calibrated with the new curve that Hans Seuss from the La Jolla Radiocarbon Laboratory had realized so that we could see that the dates in radiocarbon years were actually a little bit earlier. And thus the site there at C-degree existed in, cal in calendar years, which are the years that Maria liked to use, 5,500 uh, or 5,200 to 2,700 to 2,200. And that would be, that would be the, the, the calibration curve that we used in every site. Now, 
here's the deep sounding. I told you it was about five by five meters, which it was. It went down 10 and a half meters. And as you see from the meter level over there, it shows you how deep it went. It was tough for the people under there. And eventually we had to shore up the sides of that particular opening because the fear was that perhaps it would cave in because it went to 10 and a half meters. And, and the materials were looked at from that particular square in a particular way. So the, 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 the levels would be all along here from the top, from the bottom of the level to the top. From the, and at the very beginning, the pottery that was most uh, prominent was this sort of black top. And this was something which looked a great deal like the Vincha pottery from Yugoslavia, a middle Neolithic site. But by the middle of, of, the, of the phase, that's phase three, there's a great explosion of this graphite painted ware. And here's a, a picture of a very interesting and large lid for a pot. There also was in the, in, in the second phase, the beginning of some imports. These were spondylus uh, bracelets made from the, the um, it's, called, it's, an, it's sort of an oyster that's found in the rocky shores right off the coast in southern, in southern Greece, in, not in the southern part of Greece, but in the southeast part of Greece, and probably around the Aegean all over. And it was very popular it really became uh, traded all over the Balkans as well. And here was another of uh, uh, the finds. These were spindle worlds. And it was quite clear that there was a lot of spinning going on, lots of production of textiles, because we had some imprints on the bottom of pottery. But we also had an interesting development in the, in the uh, flocks of sheep. If you are if you are herding sheep and you want you want flocks of sheep that if, if you want to have lots of wool, then you keep the older animals. They grow bigger, they give you lots of fleece and you use the younger ones for food. And at a certain point in time in the, in the third phase when there was more trade and more obviously interconnection with other sites and other areas. The animal component, Chandra Bokoni could show us that the, the, the older animal sheep were being kept. And so our inference was that they were being kept for the fleece and then for the wool. And at the same time, we had this, these decorated spindle worlds. So it seemed to us that so it seemed to me anyway, that they were very interested in trade. Now, this is called Madara flint. It's kind of a honey brown flint. <laughs> These are just two little blades, but in the huge chipstone industry, Madara flint was about one third of all. And it came from some two or 300 kilometers away in Northeast Bulgaria. So already uh, at the very beginning of the Cedigree settlement, there was a little bit of this flint 
in the assemblage. And by the third phase, there was a lot of it. So there was a lot of some kind of down the line trade with Northeast Bulgaria. And there also we would find the, the graphite painted pottery. And here is that uh, large lid suggesting a, a woven web-like design. And as I mentioned, Sea uh, Degree is close to the site of Dicolitas, that's the French site. And they also had uh, graphite painted pottery. The one on the right is from Dicolitas, the one on the left was another drawing of that lid. I, I don't really know if we talked about how the two sites might have been connected. Certainly, if you went from sea degree to the coast, let's say you went on an outing, 25 kilometers, you have to make a stop in between. And maybe the stop was at Tikalitash. Maybe there were kinfolk there. The sites were certainly uh, occupied at the same time. Now, here, for example, is a, uh, a large vase from sea degree. It has black on kind of a red. Note the shape because there's another one from, um, from Dikalitash, which is so very familiar. Now, at the very top of the mound, there were huge, we, we made some huge openings. And there we found the remains in, uh, in post holes of a very long house. It's now the early Bronze Age. The house seemed to be pretty much empty of any artifacts. We didn't have the walls, of course, we just had the outline, but it, in the house, there was one find and it was quite remarkable. It's this black diorite shaft hole ax. You can just see off to the right where the stippling is, where the hole would be. The head of the animal was the butt end, but really this probably was a mace head. And if you put a stick in the hole and lift it up, it really becomes a symbol to pay attention to. And there is nothing like this in any other part of Greece. Now this is about 2400 BC, but over to the east, there are these uh, animal headed mace heads found in male graves. So they probably have to do with the beginning of the early Bronze Age. And here was one of the remarkable finds. This came almost, was exposed almost underneath the longhouse. And here we had more than just the outlines of a house. Here we have the outlines of the, what was probably the kitchen of the house, as well as the other part. Because in this uh, semicircular area, where all the ovens, there was an oven here, there was a platform here and another oven here and one here. There were all kinds of, of um, all kinds of artifacts found in the house because the burned house itself preserved, the burning itself preserved everything in the house. Here was a plan drawn of that. And, well, it's not a very, it's not very bright and you can't really see it so well, but but, but all the different artifacts were noted in there. And here we see a very nice photograph of Maria. She, as I said, 
1968, she had, well, she was finishing the last season at Oakbury, but she drove from there to, UCLA, to the UCLA site that Colin was directing. He was director in the field and co-director. And here she is, she is giving a kind of a seminar to both the students from UCLA, college students from Sheffield, he was there at the time, and Jean Dayai, the late director of Dikalutash's team came over from Dikalutash. You can see on the table, there are some, well, they're tiny little figurines, and I'll show you some of them now. Okay, this is a seated torso, little black on red, kind of, Maria said it was a painted apron. And here, one of, this is a very naturalistic rear view of a figurine, very naturalistic, but we never found any other portions of it. And now a series of kind of schematic figurines. And this one Maria called the bird goddess. Well, she said these little ones represented birds. They had beaks and tiny little slits for eyes. There's another miniature and she thought that perhaps the holes were to hang it. There were little heads that belonged to some of these ones. Now note the, the markings, the incisions, because later on one of Maria's students, the late Sean, when wrote a, a dissertation on these markings on figurines and pots, and Maria thought it was a prescript. There's been a lot written about that, and I'm not sure and I don't think it's, I don't think the discussion is over yet. Now another series of, of these heads. This one was sort of a um, really quite an evocative one. Here's the little animal. Now this little animal was discovered practically complete. It had lost its, its what was what, what was sitting on its back, a sort of a um, kind of a bowl, like an offering bowl, but the, the, it has the head of a, of a pig, a snout. It's painted black on that red. And at every uh, upper where, it's, where the shoulder would have been of the leg, there's a little lug hole. So there's a lug hole through the nose, lug hole through the four upper corners of the leg. So obviously this was a hanging object, quite a handsome hanging object. Now, this is Maria's, her first drawing of old Europe, which, <laughs> which she presented in that book that all of you know about, Gods and Goddesses of Old Europe. And now I noticed that, uh, that, the, that, the, <laughs> that the idea that um, old Europe has <laughs> finally sort of been accepted and separated from its connection to the idea of any particular excavation or even indeed the gods and goddesses of old Europe. Uh, because, in the, because when Maria wrote villages depending upon domesticated plants and animals had appeared in Southern Europe as early as the seventh millennium, <clears throat> And the spiritual forces accompanying this change in the economic and social organization 
manifested itself in the emergent tradition of the Neolithic and old Europe she introduced. Subsequently, uh, in John Chapman's book, Forging Identities in the Prehistory of Old Europe, he, he wrote, this sense of a geographically delimited region linked by distinctive long-term cultural practices. And he goes on to say, and I say it's important to point out that no matter how you look at it, you have to recognize that things and practices would be different <clears throat> from place to place and region to region. And, but nevertheless, in the end, in that big area and the time period between three and 4,000 years ago, the Neolithic package of farming and sedentism was chosen by hunters and foragers, never the other way, never the other way around. So I, I, I think we'll, this was Maria Adekilion, where indeed I'll finish up. And there are just a few more slides. She had these wonderful heads in Adekilion, which added to her ideas. And this was particularly important because it was a tiny little pillar, a little stand and a mask that, and she had earlier said that these were masks and now she then she felt vindicated. So going back to uh, concluding, I have to say that in this region, that's the region she called Old Europe, <clears throat> Maria brought with her her pantheon. She was hailed and she was roundly criticized for her idiosyncratic identification of the sculptures. She infuriated academia because she didn't present her ideas with a cloak of ambiguity. She was always quite certain. And you know, her goddess writings have generated pass passionate, positive, and negative responses. Towards the end of her life, she referred to herself as an archaeomythologist. I think it's very important to recognize that there's been an enormous effort to, to talk about the significance of the figurines in their own time to challenge Maria's pantheon. Well, Maria asked some very interesting questions. And if we don't like her answers, we have to pursue further research. And that alone is setting the agenda. And I thank you very much. I'd like to now introduce our first respondent, Colin Renfrew. Dr. Renfrew, I've introduced you earlier. Uh, the room is yours now. First of all, I'd like to thank Ernestine Elster for her very uh, interesting uh, survey of Maria's archaeological fieldwork uh, and uh, uh, for her uh, very nice slides of our excavations <clears throat> at Sitagri. Uh, and I first met uh, Maria when she was traveling in the Aegean and visited my excavations uh, on the Cycladic island of Antiporos uh, in 1964 or 1965. And it was then that she invited me uh, to visit uh, UCLA uh, and to, uh, uh, to give a course of lectures there. Uh, and uh, it was then that we uh, decided that we would like jointly uh, to excavate at the site of Sitagri, uh, about which, uh, uh, which 
uh, uh, Ernestine Elster has spoken so eloquently. Uh, now, uh, it's difficult, I think, to relate the different aspects of the work of Maria Gimbutas. But one thing I would like to say is uh, that she had great enthusiasm uh, for the, uh, the sculptures. Um, uh, some of them may be termed figurines, but some of the more substantial ones certainly merit the terminology sculpture. And indeed, uh, from uh, other sites of the same period, uh, for instance, the site of Vincia, uh, one uh, uh, the Vincia culture, there are almost life-size heads of the same period, uh, the, uh, the European calcolithic uh, of uh, sort of uh, 4000 BC. And so uh, Maria was a great enthusiast for uh, old Europe, uh, as she termed it, and rightly termed it, because uh, she realized, uh, as did a number of us, and as radiocarbon dating uh, ultimately demonstrated, that these sites in the Balkans, Vincia, uh, and indeed Sitagree itself, uh, were not the contemporaries of Troy, uh, of the Aegean Early Bronze Age, uh, as uh, many scholars uh, had imagined, uh, including uh, Gerashanin, whom Maria, uh, Maria mentioned, and including uh, uh, Milojic, uh, but were far earlier. And so Maria was very happy with the emerging radiocarbon dates, uh, which showed how much earlier uh, the, uh, uh, the cultures of Vincia and Sitagri were uh, than Troy, which represented the uh, Aegean Early Bronze Age. Uh, and so that was a, a great discovery, which was made at the time, and which Maria's excavations certainly uh, contributed to. We all contributed to that at the time, I think, in an effective way. And it's an interesting point, a technological point, that this represents the origins of metallurgy. Uh, and uh, so that I think is a very important uh, issue. Uh, the, uh, the metallurgy uh, originated earlier in the Balkans uh, than anywhere else. Uh, and uh, so the site of Varna on the Black Sea, which has not been discussed today, it's not very relevant today because Maria was not, uh, was not involved in its discovery, but that has the earliest gold work in the world. So Maria was a great enthusiast and rightly so for the originality of the cultures, which she termed uh, old Europe. Uh, and uh, I think it's a very good terminology uh, because it implies the originality of those cultures, uh, which is manifest not only uh, in, uh, uh, in the early metallurgy, but in the very profuse uh, uh, terracotta works, uh, which no doubt do illustrate a series of goddesses and gods uh, which were uh, venerated at the time. It's worth mentioning also, or emphasizing, that Maria originally called her book Goddesses and Gods of Old Europe, and it was published first as Gods and Goddesses because the publishers thought that sounded better, but it didn't sound better to Maria, so of course uh, later editions became very rightly Goddesses and Gods of Old Europe. Now, uh, to, uh, it's important also 
to mention uh, that Maria was very impressed by the circumstance that there seemed to be an invasion from, uh, from Eastern Europe or from beyond Eastern Europe uh, at, uh, at the end of old Europe, uh, which, uh, which brought to an end those, uh, uh, the, the, those flourishing uh, cultures with their rich, uh, their rich store of painted pottery. And the pottery which followed uh, was uh, uh, just uh, rather dull monochrome pottery, uh, unpainted. Uh, and uh, uh, this was the time of uh, what Maria termed the Kurgan invasions. And it's worth emphasizing that recent DNA work uh, has uh, uh, given strong support uh, to the arguments which Maria Gimbutas made at that time. Uh, and she emphasized uh, that these incoming cultures uh, seem to be essentially male dominated, male led, and the, uh, the Bathrax, which, uh, which Ernestine showed from Sittergree was an example of that, uh, male led. Uh, and so um, Maria saw that very much as a time of an invading patriarchy uh, from the East, which brought an end uh, to the more balanced uh, uh, civilization or cultures of old Europe, which uh, Maria didn't see as dominated entirely by women. I think she, she used the term Gilani, uh, and she thought of a, a more balanced uh, relationship between male and female at that time. So to go back to just some sort of more concluding comments on Maria as a feminist, uh, I don't think uh, Maria saw herself uh, entirely uh, in that light. She became, of course, uh, somebody much admired by the feminist movement, and understandably so. Uh, and of course, her own life had been a difficult one. She was a, a wonderfully successful woman archaeologist uh, with very prolific writings. Uh, and so it's not altogether surprising uh, that she uh, became uh, venerated uh, by uh, the feminist movement. And I remember well uh, at, uh, at a conference in Malta where there's wonderful underground uh, temples they've been called. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, feminists there wanted to uh, sort of idolize Maria uh, and uh, had, uh, had meetings uh, to that effect. But I think uh, Maria had just a, uh, took a much more balanced view uh, but she was a great enthusiast, and this is the point I'd like to emphasize, a great enthusiast uh, for these very rich cultures uh, of what she very rightly termed old Europe. And that is there, as I say, uh, that metallurgy originated, the earliest metallurgy in the world, the earliest goldwork in the world. And this very rich series <coughs> of deities, if we want to call them that. Uh, I think we, we perhaps can call them that. This rich series of deities, uh, many of them, most of them uh, female rather than male, although it's fair to say uh, that indeed uh, the majority of them do not have sexual indications. You can't always assign gender uh, to these uh, representations. So um, uh, I think uh, it was, Maria was at a time 
when there was a very strong feminist movement developing and she became uh, a sort of uh, emblem for the movement. Uh, I think perhaps more than she herself uh, desired. Uh, and uh, uh, she didn't see that, I think, as the main thrust of her work. She saw the main thrust of her work uh, as uh, reconstructing the prehistory of old Europe, emphasizing its originality, emphasizing the richness of its spiritual life, if one can call it that. Obviously, there are no written records. So we say spiritual life, we're working on the basis of what we see uh, in, the, uh, in the imagery on the pottery, the painted pottery, and in these small sculptures, or figurines, as we as we turn as we tend to call them. So uh, I think Maria made a great contribution, uh, and uh, this I think is uh, what uh, uh, what we can salute her for and admire her contributions. So those are the comments I'd like to offer. Although I'd be very willing to have to enter into discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Javile Gambutas. Uh, the room is yours for some response. Thank you for very interesting presentations. I, f uh, I will respond to Rasa Navitskaita mainly because uh, Dr. Elster's and Lord Renfrew's presentations concern areas I don't uh, know as much about to comment on them. I find Navitskaita's presentation of Gimbutas's work in relation to feminism quite illuminating and thought-provoking. It prompts me to adjust my view of mother's work as being understandable without reference to feminism and leads me to perceive the mutual influence or interaction between feminism and Gimbutas's work. Navitskaita does this by a clear explanation of various strands of feminism and a meaningful account of Gimbutas's association with individual feminists and groups without minimizing the intrinsic aspects of Gimbutas's academic work. I will return to the important points in her presentation, but first a brief basis of my previous view that Gimbutas's work is under understandable on its own. My perspective stems from my experience of growing up with a mother who was an academic scholar and professor. During my childhood, she was a researcher at Peabody Museum, Harvard University, and published The Prehistory of Eastern Europe in 1956. During my adolescence, she was in Stanford and published The Baltz in 1961. And then in UCLA, she filled the need for archeology span and the new Indo-European Studies Program and soon published the huge work, Bronze Age Cultures of Eastern Europe. Then began the decade of excavations, which Dr. Elster has covered so well. And the findings from these excavations produced the gods and goddesses of old Europe. Mother was not the kind of scholar to be isolated in an ivory tower. She kept correspondence with many academics and had a flourishing social life in the Lithuanian community. However, she was academically oriented. She, she uh, 
pursue the whole range of academic duties like presiding on committees and directing dissertations, attending conferences and so forth. So her eventual association with feminists in the 1980s appeared to be an extension of her social circle consistent with her openness to people and relationships. Some of the women feminists were academics like her. For instance, Charlene Sprednock was a cultural historian, is a cultural historian. Miriam Dexter, a mythologist, was a former student. Pat Reese was an artist as well as a psychotherapist. And through Star Goody, she, she was involved in the Los Angeles Goddess Circle. In the late 80s, feminists like Vicki Noble, Starhawk, Olympia Dukakis, even Jane Fonda briefly, were an interesting uh, supportive group of women, a kind of a buzz in her social life, a surprising variation on her academic circle. Moreover, I missed parts of these uh, associations because in the 80s, in the early 80s, I was in Indiana University Bloomington studying uh, comparative literature. And in the late 80s, early 90s, I was in Lithuania teaching at the University of uh, Lithuania. So I saw some of these uh, feminists in, the, in a photo album later and I read articles about her association with feminists in books like In the Realm of the Ancestors, edited by Joan Marler. Secondly, besides uh, not really being involved in the feminist associations, I have un understood mother's feminism and strong female identity as an inherent part of her character and influenced by strong female models in her family. She was very ambitious from her very early student years and always had, very, uh, had much confidence in herself. Later, she was uh, friends with women in the Lithuanian women's associations who might have influenced her, but uh, not, not other feminists. Third, I've thought of her study and appreciation of Baltic folklore and mythology as probably the key and as the key to her discovery of old Europe, not entirely uh, the basis for the discovery of Europe, of course, because it was based on archaeological finds, but but her identification with Baltic mythology led her to understand an ancient uh, nature-loving, woman-centered civilization. Therefore, my initial impression of Navitskaita's placement of Gimbutas's work in the social-cultural context of feminism was that of an extrinsic approach versus intrinsic procedure, but a valid and interesting approach, analogous to the relation of picture and framework or the positioning of a literary work in terms of a current like romanticism or realism in the 19th century, which illuminates aspects of the literary work. Back to Navitskaita's presentation, uh, her, her points are 
very well made. I won't go over all the associations that she brings up with the various feminists, but she does show good judgment in aligning Maria Gimbutas with the radical or revolutionary strand of cultural feminism. The neo-pagan movement, witchcraft or goddess movement represented by Carol Christ, Naomi Goldenberg, Susanna Budapest, Starhawk, who spoke of inheriting the tradition of old world religion and goddess worship and of witchcraft as earth-centered nature-oriented worship that venerated the goddess. And she points out the propitious timing as she, as we heard in the fertile soil of the growing feminist movement so that she provided a scholarly basis for the goddess movement just when it was needed, a basis in fact on the other hand, the feminist movement offered a bridge between Gimbutas's work and society, which showed its relevance to society. Henceforth, there was a productive interaction between Gimbutas and feminists, individual artists, scholars, activists, and groups. And there are many examples which I won't go into. So that uh, she explained the interaction as an influence on Maria Gimbutas's purpose and audience in the last two books, The Language of the Goddess and The Civilization of the Goddess, where uh, she directs her work to broader society, not just the specialists. And thus, in the interaction between feminists and Gimbutas, we have mutual illumination, mutual interaction and influence not just an extrinsic approach as an interpretive tool. And this results in new, new ideas, thoughts. For instance, the synchronicity and serendipity that uh, happened in, in this association with feminism brings up the uh, force larger than one scholar or individual feminist. It points to workings of the collective unconscious, which Naviskaita has mentioned in regard to folklore uh, surviving from ancient times. And, and Gimbutas has also discussed collective conscious as a way to, to preserve archetypes. But uh, looking at this 20th century movement, we also see something like the collective unconscious working, uh, creating a movement or a current in which Gimbutas takes part as well as feminists, uh, which, which is in line with the environmental and ecological movements and, and might uh, make for positive change in contemporary society. So my question is, is that enough? Uh, what is missing? Where is the uh, religious connection? And uh, perhaps this is a whole other topic of uh, bringing up uh, a problem I had in the Viscaita's presentation where she um, quotes Gimbutas as saying that we have to go away from the, the transcendental uh, transcendentally oriented religions and come back to the world, to worldliness, to mundanity. And I appreciate the, uh, the worship of nature. I am indeed partly neo-pagan myself in ways, but I don't see religion as 
uh, possible without a transcendental dimension. And I wonder um, how, how this comes into play or whether, whether it's like a flaw in the work in the feminist movement and Gimbutas's work or just something uh, that isn't quite clear. I don't um, remember everything she wrote about religion, but the chapter on the sacred script in the civilization of the goddess wonders whether that script is just graphic signs or whether it is a continuation of a previous religious script. I wonder if there is anything to do with transcendence there. I think I can comment on Rasa's uh, paper individually. I can email her about other comments. For instance, her comment that mother did not express favoring the West. I think she favored the West very much over the Soviet Union. And I, I commend her in, uh, in stating the influence of Baltic folklore. She says it's at the core of her narrative. I do think that's the case. Thank you very you much. Uh, I'm going to give, uh, we, we will have to be ending very quickly, but uh, I'm going to give Dr. Navitskaita a minute to respond. Uh, again, just um, I wanted to say thank you again for inviting me. Um, I am uh, actually uh, currently um, uh, preparing a book based on my dissertation, and I will be doing a lot of re revisions in my in my work. And it was very enlightening for me to learn uh, more or uh, learn um, uh, more about Gibutas' uh, um, uh, uh, excavations uh, as presented by Professor Elster. Um, uh, and um, uh, because I think, uh, and it was uh, just really wonderful uh, and such a such a fantastic uh, really response uh, that Jivile uh, um, that um, uh, Dr. Gibutas uh, gave uh, um, uh, on my presentation. I found it very very um, uh, well. It's extremely productive for my research. Uh, and uh, actually, some of the critical comments that you made, I have been already thinking uh, about it just before this lecture. Thank you very much for that. And I think it's just like, I think when talking about Gimbutas and I felt that it was a huge challenge when writing a dissertation because I feel like so many different fields come together. Uh, and it, um, just like it, it was, um, she had an extremely rich uh, life and extremely rich career. And it is extremely difficult to actually put together all those different um, things. But um, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I think that those kind of discussions as also we had today, uh, can be fruitful, maybe, for understanding how interdisciplinary her work was uh, and uh, how, um, uh, yeah, uh, how many uh, different uh, questions we can ask through her work. Um, thank you very much. Again, thank you very much. We will have to be breaking now. Thank you very much uh, to everybody for joining us for this wonderful mm -hmm. commemoration of Maria Gimbutas. Mm -hmm.